And good morning, Calvary. How are you? Good. It is uh, Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. We encourage you to invite people. Um, and here's the thing. Easter Sunday is usually a really crowded Sunday, but it's not if we don't invite people, right? So this is the week where you can invite people, take in those reservations and, and say, here, I, I got you a spot. Come, come, come join us. And we hope that you'll invite people and that next week we'll really come in. And while we don't know what they're expecting, today we want to use a, a chance to set up what we're expecting. It's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is indicative of the time that leads up to Holy Week where the people were expecting Jesus to be something different than who he was. Does that make sense? Jesus, they thought, was going to be an earthly king. They thought he was going to set up an earthly throne. They thought he was going to come in and revolutionize their life. And he did, but not in the way they thought he would. And a lot of times, this is how we approach faith. We want Jesus to change our lives, but we want him to change our lives the way that we want him to change our lives, instead of really pausing to see how Jesus is really going to change our lives. Let me explain it to you like this, week, this way. This week, a couple days ago, we took um, our two boys, and we told them we were going up north. They didn't know where we were going. We, we told them we were going to go out to eat, which is true. We went out to eat afterwards. But we randomly showed up at this couple's house, and they were like, what are we doing? We are like, don't worry about it. Just go up and ring the doorbell. They are like, this is weird. We went and rang the doorbell. They walked in, and the lady said there, hey, boys, I've heard all about you. And they were like, we have no earthly idea who you are, right? And just sitting there staring. And I said to the lady, I said, do you want to tell them why we're here? And she said, you're here to see your future puppy. And this is the point where my 11-year-old, who has begged for a puppy since our last one passed about six years ago, was sitting there going. It <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> got so excited. There's a cute picture. And I was going to throw the picture up there, but later I don't want him to hate me, so I'm not going to show that up there. But it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I saw him so th- have the excitement of meeting his future puppy. And that's an intimate relationship, right? A boy and his dog, a, do- a girl and the dog, right? That, I mean, that's if you've been there. But I sat there and I thought to myself as I was doing this, and I, I'm going to do a little pastor juke here for a second. That's what we do. But I sat there and I thought as I was watching his enthusiasm, I was like, when was the last time I was that excited about anything? And then I sat there and I thought to myself, when was the last time I was that excited about what Jesus is doing in my life? When was the last time you were that excited to realize who Jesus is? You see, there's a, a point in our life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, where you can sit there and you can become very cold and callous to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And you can do this without even knowing it's happened. You can be the person who shows up here every week and you can sing the songs. You can go through the motions and eh, let it be, let it be. There's a reason I don't sing. Uh, Jesus, right? And you can walk out and have it not affect you, and you can leave here unchanged. And everybody around you can be fooled. Let me be very transparent. In a moment that can scare you and should scare you, I can do that as a pastor. If I'm not careful, 
You see, I can open up the Bible. I've had a lot of training on the Bible and how to teach the Bible and what the Bible says. I've had seven semesters of Greek. None of that's that important. But I can go through all this stuff and I can talk to you. I have the degree that's hanging on the wall, except I don't hang on the wall because I don't like hanging degrees on the wall. It's just me. I don't know. And so I have all this education and I can open up the Bible and I can start reading through it and I can prepare a sermon and I can sit there and I go, this should impact those people and this will impress those people. And I can do all of that and have it not affect me. And if that doesn't scare you, you should be scared. Because pastors, if we're not careful, can treat this like a job. You know why? Because it is. But it shouldn't be. And here's the reality. If I can go through that And if I have to fight to make sure that the Bible and that what God has done for me on the cross remains fresh and vibrant in my life, I know that's probably true for you as well. Whether you're a a first-time person here or a person who's been here long before I ever set foot in the door, whether you're a brand-new Christian or you've been following Christ for 75 years, The challenge is still the same. And this is part of the reason we study the Easter story year after year after year. It's to remind us that the gospel never gets old. And by gospel, I mean good news. That the story of what Jesus can do for our life should never become something that just we go, oh yeah, I know that story, right? It should be something fresh and vibrant, like a boy receiving his puppy. We should have the same enthusiasm, the same excitement of what Jesus did on the cross, that resurrection. Day all those years ago. So how do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. In Luke chapter 23, we're going to begin reading in verse 44. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. You can look up your smartphone, whatever you crazy kids are doing these days, to find it. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. Here's what it says. It was about noon. This is the moment, by the way, where Jesus is being crucified towards the end of the crucifixion. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three. And because the sun's light failed, the curtain and the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what was happening, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. And all the crowds that gathered for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Who were the people here and what were their vantage points? Well, there were several. There were theirs who there that day who were really saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. And they were the disciples. They were Jesus' very mother. They were there to watch and to see if the God who had saved the world so many times, the God who had done all these wonderful and amazing things, was going to perform yet another miracle and somehow save himself. They had expectations, but they also didn't know what to expect. There's another group of people there, those who were against Jesus and those who were wanting to watch him die, and those who seemingly wanted to prove that this guy was not who he said he was, but... All of these people seem to have a vested interest in who Jesus was. And then 
There were there those who were there that day who didn't seem to have a vested interest, but were just there. How is that possible? Well, they were the centurions, the soldiers. Those who were there because it was their job. Have you ever thought about there were people who were there just because they didn't want to be, but because it was their job? It was their job. And the Roman soldiers that day really had two parts of their job at any given point. The first thing was to maintain order. And obviously they would have had quite a few soldiers there because there were people who wanted Jesus killed and there were people who didn't want Jesus killed. And they were there to make sure that a riot didn't happen. They were to maintain the civil order. They were doing their job. But the other part of their job was to carry out the crucifixion. And you might think, That would have been an awful job. That would have been very brutal. And and it was a brutal job because crucifixions, as we discussed last week, and if you weren't here, the, the very nature of what a crucifixion was, was to be as brutal as possible. To inflict as much pain and punishment. And so surely this would be a difficult job to do. It would, except that they did this, some people estimated, over 10,000 times. The Romans killed people through crosses. You see, Jesus was just one of a many list. And I don't know if you ever thought about it, but there were soldiers whose jobs were to crucify people. If this is your job, I think you have to begin to ask yourself, okay, what would make you do this? Well, they didn't really have a choice. You see, at the time, the soldiers were Roman soldiers. Most of them were not Jews. They wouldn't have had a a vested interest in what this story was about, but they would have been assigned to maintain the order. We mentioned that. But they also were assigned to be in the military for 25 years. That's right. If you were a Roman soldier, there was no four years, I'm going to go get my college education and get out. There was none of that. These were lifers, and if you signed up, you were a lifer. And the reward of being a lifer was you got paid. Only you didn't really get paid. You got food and, and uh, a place to live. And you were supposed to get married, by the way. That was one of the things. They wanted you to get married. They felt it made you more stable at the time. And they wanted you to get married, but they really didn't give you much money because they took your money and put it away for your retirement. It was the first social security system kind of thing. And when you retired, then you got a piece of land. And they found they all lived together because they understood the lifestyle. They understood the job. They, they, they gathered together. And this was the life. 25 years, and then you lived together with the other soldiers and their families. That's what you did. But part of that is they would travel around. They, they would live with people who didn't understand them. They would be people who were often despised, yet respected. But here's the thing. They really didn't have a choice to where they went. Now, another thing about the story, it says there in verse 47, when the centurion saw what was happening, the person that this story describes is a centurion. A centurion was one in a hundred. Century, you get it? It was the officer. And if you're a centurion, you would have been a centurion because, well, you were good at your job because it wasn't like if you didn't get promoted, you got kicked out of the military. You were still in for 25 years. And so if you were a centurion, you were very, very good at your job, which meant that you were good at being tough. You were good at commanding order. You were respected and in a sense, probably calloused. And if you were a centurion over the crucifixion detail, can you imagine what kind of person you were? In a sense, this would have been the most unlikely person to notice Jesus. 
This would have been the most unlikely person. Have you ever found out that the Bible tends to use the most unlikely people? I love it. It finds the weakest person to be strong. It finds the most callous person to be soft. And you find in this story, there is a centurion whose job is to carry out crucifixions, whose job is to perform calloused, cold-blooded executions that inflicts pain and punishment while the people are mobbing, suddenly notices there's something different about this man. And I'm wondering what that story has to do for us. Because you see, when in verse 47 it says, When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't think he went to work that day on his shift, expecting to kill three people, expecting to encounter the presence of God. But have you ever noticed that's how God works? And maybe today you showed up here because it's Sunday. Maybe today you showed up here because you were dragged. You got guilted into coming. Maybe just maybe you came because it's Easter weekend. Well, we want to be there more than just Christmas and Easter. So we're going to come the week before too. Maybe just maybe you showed up and you sang the songs and you thought to yourself, I kind of like this. Let it be, let it be. But you weren't really expecting the power of the good news of Jesus Christ to change or transform your life. And I think this story reaches into the soul of humanity. And it cries out for us to realize that right here, right now, God is whispering to us. I want to be in your every breath of your moment of your life. But I think sometimes it's hard to understand that because, well, it's just a job for me. It's just something we do. We're Christians. We go to work. I wear the title. I'm a soldier. I, I, I go through the motions. And I think sometimes we can miss out on what's really saying to us. In John 19, 32 through 35, it says this. So the soldiers came back and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, and by the way, they were breaking the legs to speed up the process of his death. They did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once the blood and the water came out. He saw this and testified so that you also may believe his testimony is true. And he knows he is telling the truth. Now, is this the Roman centurion or just another soldier? I don't know. How's that for an honest answer? <laughs> But here's what happened. A Roman soldier testified to the Jews and stood by the testimony even after his death, he was dead. That's the point of that story. He was dead. And why would they testify even after his death that he was dead except that he had rose again and he saw that he was no longer in the tomb and he testified, a non-Jewish person testified to the power of the resurrection. Now, if this was the same centurion, and if you did realize that if it wasn't, then there's two people who saw the power of what Jesus did when they weren't expecting it, who were going through the motions of their day, who just happened to be there because they were assigned there, that happened to see in the moment the power of who Jesus was, then that's great. 
But if you think it may be the same person, let me just tell you that church history says, although I can't prove it, so we're moving from the fact, place of fact into theory. Everybody understand that. I don't want to confuse. Okay? We're going to theory now. But it's probable, if not more than likely, that this person has a name. And I don't want to give you the name, but you can look it up, okay? And the name of this person showed that they lived for Christ and as a Roman converted to follow Christ the rest of the days through the power of Christ and then was martyred himself. So picture this. If that story holds to be true, you have a person who not only was a person who killed many people, but actually killed Christ and then later was killed for following Christ. Why would he do that? My voice cracked there. That's weird. Why would he do that? Because in the moment when he least expected it, the power of who Jesus truly was penetrated the inner part of his soul and he could never be the same. So what was different about this event? Was it the cruelty of the cross? Well, no, that was very common to him. He would have seen the worst of society. He would have seen the criminals. He would have known the stories. Everyone's innocent, right? He would have seen the cruelty, yet Jesus' death was especially cruel. How was his death especially cruel? They fixated a crown of thorns. By the way, a little squeamish alert. I'm not going to go too much details, but if you're real squeamish, you may want to not listen for a second. They would have twisted a crown of thorns on his head, causing the blood to run down his side and mocked him as the king of the Jews. They would have draped a purple robe on him, calling him king, only to have it scab up. And when they peeled that robe off, it would have adhered as another level of skin. And when he peeled it off, it would have been like his skin ripped again and his body would have bled profusely again, only to make him carry the cross up himself to the point where he could not long, no longer do it and fall flat on his face and have to have someone else carry that cross to where he was then pierced and hung suffocating for his death. Yet they would have saw him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They would have heard him say, John, take care of my mother because I can't be with her. They would have seen the lack of serious crimes and the realization that this was not a murderer. This was not a committed felon over and over again. The only man, crime this man did was to claim to be the son of God. And he could have recanted of that at any moment and saved his life. They would have seen the way he carried himself. They would have seen the testimony of his death. And it led them to two profound conclusions. One, this man was righteous. Did you get that? Here is a man whose job is to kill people. Who's heard every excuse under the sun. Who's seen the fact that, yeah, you're not guilty. Right. I've heard that before, right? Who's seen the brutality of what it was. Who would have become cold and callous to the moment. Who would have sat there and his job is to sit there and walk through the motions. And, and to carry out this crucifixion while everybody else is going, oh, this is making me sick. The brutality. And he's like, yeah, who wants to go get a milkshake after this? This is the kind of people they're dealing with. And in this moment, in the middle of the tragedy, in the middle of all that's going on, he declares, this man is righteous. 
That's what Jesus does. He grips us in our moment of our insecurities. He grips us in our moments of unexpected bliss. And he shows up and he says, I am here. You see, the power of the cross and the power of the testimony of the centurion was the least likely person on the planet got his puppy eyes. Say, I'm too manly for puppy eyes. All right. Got his emotions stoked to the realization that he needed to follow Christ. He is righteous. And I don't think we can live our life daily calloused and cold. And I don't... But like I said before, you do realize how easy it is to flip into that mode. Right? To just, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's what I do. Cold. Calloused. I go to school. I tell people I follow Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's Easter. We're going to gather together and everybody's going to show up. It's going to be great. And we sing a song and we Live a life that is totally unchanged. But see, just like that centurion, when you notice the righteousness of what Jesus did, the fact that he breathed his last, and in his last breath, he declared, it is finished. He did so that our very breath, every breath, would be transformed by the power of what he did. Do you know there's a God who loves you enough that he was, as innocent man, allow the brutality of that treatment to come into your life to transform you? You see, I, I hear the stories all the time. Jesus changed my life. That's great. How's he changing your life now? There was this time in 1975 when I was born, Right? This time in 1992 when God did this. This time in 2007, because some of the kids in the room are like, wait, he went all the way back to the 1900s. When Jesus did this, and there's this time, and we tell the stories of what, to our kids, to our family, of this time when Jesus showed up in our life. And I want to go, that's great. What's he doing now? Is Jesus changing your heart now? Or have you gone into a pattern of being able to open your Bible and have it unaffect you, to show up at church and walk out the same, of missing the moments where God wants to breathe into your life out of the very breath he gave up so that you might have life? This is the vantage point of the centurion. To realize that in this moment, God wants to speak to you. So what, do we, what does he want to say? And how do I know that I'm getting it? How do I know that I'm not living the callous, cold life? It said there, it led him to glorify God. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God. 
glorify. The word glorify is the old Greek word doxa. It's where we get the word doxology. Excuse me for mispronouncing Greek. I always do. I just don't always apologize for it. If you know Greek, I'm not very good at pronouncing it, but I, I can study it and read it. The word doxology is the word that means to declare and to, to how good God is. And I wasn't even planning this, but earlier in the service, it, it dawned on me. When I think of doxology, I think of the old hymn. There's an old hymn that says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the, it's a very wonderful song. And that song has special significance to me because I have a big family. My mom's side is a history of preachers and a bunch of preacher preachers. My great-grandfather was a circuit preacher. I have his commentaries in my office. He was, he was the guy who had five churches, and he traveled on horseback to preach to these different churches, and he'd get out and preach. And, and so this family has a great legacy of following Christ. And when we gathered together as a little boy with the 70 to 80 people that were gathered together, we would always say a prayer, and then we would always sing the doxology. And you might go, well, that's neat tradition. But see, here's the thing. That meant so much more to me than a tradition because I heard and saw and looked around that room and I knew that most of those people in the room, not all of us, right? Were people whose lives breathed the very presence of Jesus. And as they sang that song, I, I remember thinking this is a legacy of people who get it. And my family's not perfect, and your family's not perfect, and we're nobody's perfect. But that was so much more than a tradition to me, because it was a, the reason they wanted to sing it, is they wanted everyone to know in that family that when we gathered together, it wasn't just about the family, but rather we gathered together for the purpose of glorifying God. And as a five, six, seven-year-old kid, I remembered thinking that is transformative. And I'm wondering how I live my life now. And I'm wondering how you live your life now. If this really sinks in, if this really changes who you are. Yesterday, we survived the snow apocalypse. Anybody, everybody survived the snow apocalypse? Now, I, I do know that there are people that got quite a bit of snow, okay? But here's the interesting thing. Yesterday afternoon, about three o'clock, I was like, it didn't even snow because I live up by Harrison High School. My yard, you could mow today. There is no snow. None. I mean, I saw a flake or two. I was like, <laughs> nothing. And then the amazing thing happened is I went up to the church and there was snow on the ground. I live less than a mile from here. And then I went over by campus, okay? And when I was campus, I saw huge snowmen. Somebody even said they made, there's a snow rabbit. Somebody made a snow rabbit on campus. Huge ones. And then you go a little farther south, and, and I'm sitting there going, how is that possible in less than two miles you have snowmen that are bigger than me, right? To my yard, if you took all the snow and gathered it together, you might could get an ice cube. It makes no sense to me. How is that line? And then it suddenly occurred to me, you know what? There's a line a lot of times that exists even in the spiritual world. The fact is you could be here and miss out on the presence of God, and the person next to you could be covered with the presence of God. It doesn't have to be a mile away. It could be one inch. 
You can walk through the motions and the line of, of understanding how God wants to impact your life can be that close as to the person sitting right next to you. And you can walk out of here totally unchanged and totally unfazed and you can miss out on what God wants to say to you this Easter season, which says, I don't want you to live the routine life. I want you to know that my very presence is with you and was designed to be with you every single moment of every single breath of every single day. And here is my deepest prayer as we go forward. And I'm going to say it in two ways, okay? First way, I hope that you will always view Jesus until your dying days the same way that my son viewed that puppy with the puppy eyes. Now I'm going to say it to you tough men who think that's very beneath you. I hope that you will view God the very same way that my son viewed that puppy with puppy eyes. <laughs> because if a centurion can, you can too. And I'm wondering when the last time that you were broken at what Jesus did for you. When you grieved over the fact that he allowed himself to be tortured, pierced, mocked. When was the last time that you really understood that this historical event, which history has proven more than any other event, actually took place? There was a man named Jesus who died. That he did so because he desperately wanted you to not just have fire insurance translation a life with him into eternity, but to transform your very breath of every moment of every day. And that he loves you. See, a relationship's not a relationship if you put it in a box and in a corner. And Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. To be the centerpiece of what you are. To be the centerpiece about where you are. And, and so our simple Monday morning application this week is this. I want you to look and see Jesus in the moments around you and worship him. Say, Daniel, that is the worst Monday morning application I've ever heard. That is so simple. How on earth am I supposed to apply that? Very simple. You look around for Jesus. If you're really callous and you're in a bad place, I've been there. Let me just ask you to pray this prayer. God, show up. Can you remember that? It's three words. God, show up. If you're really going to be spiritual, God, show up so that I know how to see it and apply it to my life. Because the thing I found out is he always does. And the reality is at that moment... You can walk through the motions and you can find and sit there and go, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He's always there. It's just we don't always take the time to look around in our day-to-day -day routine and see him moving, which is why I think Jesus challenged the disciples. He said, you know what? You are the most spiritual people I know, but you're still going to struggle. And so when I'm gone and long after I'm gone, anytime you take a piece of bread, simple thing like having a meal, I want you to break it. And whenever you break the bread, I want you to remember my body was broken for you. And when he took the cup, he was reminding them that my blood was poured out for you. And so today, if you are a follower of Jesus, 
we're going to have a time to observe communion or the Lord's Supper. And in this moment, I, I want you to pray this prayer, and I want you to take it like this. God, I want to be reminded of the sacrifice you did. Show up. May, may I not be calloused or cold. Show up and, and remind me of how I need this. And change me. Really, you can control you, no one else. This sermon isn't meant for someone else. It's meant for you and me. And then let's go out glorifying him. And much like the centurion, we're going to go around telling people and testifying at the bank, at our schools, at the gas station, at the grocery store. Hey, come see the man who changes everything because he's changing me still. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we'd ask that you respectfully sit this one out. We're not trying to embarrass you or call you out, but it's just something we take seriously. And so the way we do it here is we do it popcorn where people can come forward and they can come and there's four stations around there and one, a gluten-free station in the back by the sound booth. And what you're going to do, um, for those who are followers of Christ, is you're going to come take the bread, tear it off, and take a cup and drink it and be reminded. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we have good news for you because we're not trying to exclude you. We want to include you in the greatest story that the world has ever known, and it's a relationship with Jesus. And immediately after the service, we'd like you to stop by the next step space and say, I want to know this man who would do this for me. And let him change you. It's Easter. But for the follower of Jesus, Easter is every day. Because he is risen. Oh, he is risen indeed. So God, as we observe this time and our deacons take their place, would you move in us? Would you breathe in us? Would you take this moment and make it fresh and new? Would you show us the power of what you did on the cross? And God, may we live this week looking for you, longing for you. May we open our Bibles wanting to be changed and transformed. God, guard us from being callous, from just walking through the motions. May you show us and live a life that we are changing the world because of the power of your glory that shines through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Take your time. If you need to kneel where you are, sit and pray, that's fine. But when you're ready, there's two stations up front, two up back, and a gluten-free station by the sound booth. Come and participate.